You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Good morning, Redemption. Good to see you all again this morning. Um, So our lake outside has developed a beach, which is really exciting. Um, I told Chantal this morning, I was like, I think we just need to leave this alone, let it play out, plant a few palm trees. We might have like a really uh, elevated property value for a space that we rent. I don't know where I was going with that. Um, It's good to be here together with you. There's something, uh, so last week we're, sorry, sorry, starting over. We're in our year of the table and we're exploring what does it mean for us as the people of God to actually inhabit this world as the people of God. And we kind of just bump through life as followers of Jesus. And we're trying to come together and reimagine who we are and what we're supposed to be about. And so we've got like three goals for this year. Our first goal is to like really actually hear the invitation to each one of us personally of Jesus saying, come and sit at my table. The second goal is for us to actually take a seat and then participate in all that Jesus is inviting us to participate in, which can be really awesome, but also very scary at times. And then our third goal is to create a little bit of room. We can get really comfortable down here at our end of the table and we put our elbows up and we've got our nice comfy space and we forget that it's not our table, it's actually Jesus's. And how can we create room and some space at the table for people who are not like us, who are different from us, who need to sit at the table with us? And so last week we talked about uh, for a people whose like goal is communion, if we really want to be a community that is different from anything else you're going to find in the world, then we have to be a community whose center is Jesus. That if Jesus is not a part of the community, if Jesus is not central to what we're doing in our gathering together, then we might as well go join a bowling league or a CrossFit gym or a pickleball whatever thing that y'all do with pickleball. I don't know. It's ping pong with like a big table. I don't, yeah. Today, what I want to do is I want to actually, so this whole sermon series, like cards on the table, here's what it's going to look like up until we do Advent. Um, We're going to look at a positive feature of community and then we're going to look at a negative feature of community. Things that Jesus is inviting us into, right? Communion was last week. And then ways that uh, tempt to rob us from that thing that Jesus is inviting us into. And so today is a communion part two is the title of the sermon, but really it is anti-communion. What does it mean for us to live as people of isolation? And, and part of the reality that we face as human beings living in a broken world is we are isolated. Right now, you and I are experiencing isolation. 
And what I need you to hear, my American friends, is that is not, in fact, a good thing. <laughs> right? If you're an introverted Western American who, like, grew up in Texas, like, independence and freedom were like, woo, yeah, let's go. It was the ultimate um, ideal and so part of me is like, wait, what's the problem here? Isolation sounds beautiful. I'm an introvert. Let's spend some time alone in the woods. I don't need anybody else. I don't need God. I'm actually quite good. Thank you very much. But we were created for communion. And I'm going to keep using that word because it's far richer than just community and connection. And, it, and in my mind, it's far richer than even the word love itself, though you can substitute any of those words in for communion. We were made for communion. Part of what it means to be human, I would say foundational to what it means to be human is to love and to be loved. We've talked about how infants are born and their gaze is searching who sees me? Who cares for me? Where is my safety found? And it is not in themselves. It is in the eyes of another. We're limited creatures. Limited creatures who are bound together, mediated by the love and the care of an unlimited God. I think about the garden, Genesis 1 and 2, the beginning, Adam and Eve, like whatever you want to say about how that all worked out and what, right? The story that the scriptures are trying to tell us about who we are as human beings is that you in and of yourself are not enough for yourself. And you in and of yourself with another is not enough in and of itself. That together human beings are mediated by the God of love and they were gifted with creation, and they were gifted with one another, and they were gifted with the presence of God. Life was a gift. Earth was a gift. Humanity was a gift. And they lived in mutual dependence on one another, on grace, on the gift of the world given to them by God without having to think about it. If you've been around children, this is what they do really, really well. And sometimes it's really annoying. They just walk around just assuming that people are going to give them things for nothing. My daughter wakes up every morning with expectations. Is it Halloween today? No, Zoe, it's not Halloween today. It's September 15th. Calm down. She's done that every day for the last week, and she apparently is going to continue doing it for the next 40 days or however long we've got. But the world changed. This idyllic garden picture that we get in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is ruptured. There was evil lurking in the garden. And we now live in that new world. A new world where we are now positioned over and against one another. Rather than with and for one another. Think of Adam and Eve's accusing. When God shows up after they sin, Adam's response is it's her fault. Eve's response is it's creation's fault. And when we they then retreat from the presence of God, they hide in shame. They retreat from one another. They hide in shame from each other, covering themselves, recognizing their vulnerability and their nakedness. Someone says that I say naked weird. Is that, are y'all hearing that weird? I, it sounds super normal to me, but um, anyways, yeah. So they hide from the presence of one another. God is speaking in this room right now. <laughs> 
Um, they hide from the presence of one another or they attempt to destroy one another like Cain and Abel. That Cain recognizes in his brother something that he himself does not possess, something that God is willing to freely give him. And yet Cain says, no, 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 what I would rather do is destroy my brother so that I can have what belongs to him. And Cain, like Adam and Eve, shifts the blame. I don't know if you caught it, but Cain points the finger at God in a way that God does not take responsibility for some of what happens here. And like we get it in English, but in Hebrew, it's actually very clear. It jumps off the page. There's a poetic irony in the back and forth between God and Cain. In verse 11, God tells Cain, you are cursed through the ground. This is a passive participle, right? I know, I have a master's degree, y'all. I can't actually tell you what a participle is, um, but I know this is a passive one and that matters. In other words, right, so, so what we mean with this is that God is not saying, I am doing this to you, Cain. God is saying, Cain, do you not understand what you have done to yourself? And then watch Cain's response. You are cursed through the ground is met with Cain's, you drove me away from the earth. And he wags his finger at God. My punishment is too great. Wags his finger at God. And I now have to hide from your face. And shame. And isolation. And humanity is now over and against their creator. Instead of with and for their creator. Over and against one another instead of with and for one another, they are now, humanity is now experiencing isolation rather than communion. And this is our problem. Right, we couch it as loneliness. We couch it as like a number of different things. Um, we have several counselors in the room, psychologists that could go into like details about all of this with attachment theory and all the stuff. But this shows up in the very psyche, the very like substructure of who we are as human beings. And we all come into a world that exists under the sign of the wandering Cain, preserved by God, right? So there's grace there, and yet utterly alone. Even when surrounded by other people, right? So Cain retreats into a city, and yet his fear is, I have to actually build up walls because they're going to kill me. So I can be with others, but I can't really be with others. There's still isolation, even though there is proximity. And so sin, being more than just a misstep or a lack of rules to follow, has ruptured communion, has ruptured the very center of what it means to be a human being, our ability to love and to be loved. And so much of what holds us back from freely loving another person is our fear of like, well, what are they going to do with our love? Are they going to take it for granted? Are they going to use it? Are they going to somehow like hurt me with it? And then our inability to actually let ourselves be loved. I don't trust your love. You're after something here. I know that you say you love me. And sin like Cain, who is severed from his brother, severed from the earth, severed from Eden, severed from God, and severed from neighbor, makes us utterly alone in the world. 
See, sin is not just like, oh, you've done some naughty things, or oh, you, you've looked at some inappropriate things, or oh, you've said some whatever, right? Whatever we have made sin. One of sin's brilliant maneuvers is to take sin and make it this like minor infraction that we do. And if we just clean up and polish up the minor infractions that we do, then we'll just really be fine. We can be decent religious folk. We can get by in the world and everything will be okay. Sin is far deeper, far more intrinsic, and far more vicious than I think we realize. And this is our inheritance. We are wandering canes, living in isolation. An isolation that we cannot, in fact, escape. It is the world we live in. It is the air we breathe. It is our humanness. So what do I mean by isolation? I want to spend most of the rest of this time kind of fleshing this out, and then talking about like, hey, there is some hope here. Um, So I used to teach high school Bible, and like the first two or three months was all on like some of the negative stuff that high schoolers who take Bible classes in that sort of context never hear. (laughs) I had so many parent conferences when they're like, hey, um, so curious, did you tell my kid like that they're just like a day closer to death than they were the day before? I'm just, I don't care. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I said. (laughs) Yeah, that... (laughs) Um, Yeah, sorry. (laughs) So isolation is our bending towards all of the competitive, fearful ways that ensure my existence over and against my neighbors. Isolation is our bending towards all of the competitive, fearful ways that I ensure my existence over and against my neighbors. So we use people. We fear people. We destroy people. We demand from people or we need people to be a certain way in order for us to actually love and accept them. I will love you if, I will accept you if, I will be with you if. And then we wonder why we think that God feels the same way about us. Our projection onto our creator. And so we come to view the world and others from our place of isolation and we see them either as competitors or we see them as commodities. And so we seek to destroy them, or we seek to use them. We attempt to possess people, to crush people, to have victory over people, to leverage people. Either way, in isolation, we put ourselves at the center of the cosmos, and you exist for me. Your whole purpose in life is to contribute to me and my well-being, to build my world, meet my needs, or you exist as a threat to my world and my needs and you must be destroyed. I know we've never seen this played out in like the history of humanity. And I know we've never recently seen this played out in the history of our own politics in our country. Heck, in our own church in our country, right? But this is fight or flight. This is survival of the fittest. And this is, in fact, written into your limbic system. Right? That's that deep core primal part of your brain that is like, you don't really think about. It just happens. And it is the thing that inspires you to either run away from people or devour people and get lost in them. This seems to be deeply embedded in who we are. We are an island of self-protection, self-aspiration, longing to know those who will advance our place in the world or use those who we can determine are useful to us 
or hide from those or destroy those who might threaten us or our reputation or our stuff or our status or our culture or our ideas of whatever we have determined the good life is and what our world actually should look like. Right, so one obvious way we experience this is in detachment. Um, I'm out of my depth here. I'm not a counselor. I don't pretend to be one, and I don't play one on TV. But detachment is essentially the idea of like, hey, uh, you're not worth loving, and so I'm going to withdraw and put up walls. And you've been weary and wary and battered by the ways the world has given you hate instead of love. And so like you rightly have learned to respond to other people as threats. You've experienced a severing of communion in a world of isolation. And so your way of survival is I need to further isolate to protect myself. I can never actually get hurt if I'm never close. So this sermon is not about hell, despite what apparently my hub group got into yesterday. I don't know, they sent some random text in our group message, like, here's the thing about hell. I'm like, wait, what were y'all talking about? Um, but C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite, right? So C.S. Lewis does not have like a, he's not like anti-hell, but he's also not like super literal hell. And he talks about hell in these really hard ways to actually pin down, which aggravate people. But it's, I think is really great. And one of the things that he describes about hell in this book that he wrote, which is a, obviously a fictional book, um, it's called, can't remember, that's okay. Thank you, thank you. We have an educated audience. Yeah, The Great Divorce, thank you very much. So he captures it beautifully when he describes hell as a place where we are all perpetually in motion away from one another and away from God. And, and it's our own like choosing, like we're just pursuing our own little life and our own little happiness. And what we end up doing is just moving further and further and further away. And so he describes like Napoleon, like that Napoleon who lives 150,000 years out. And he's like the nearest of those who live out there. And someone went out to visit him once and they described when they saw him and he's just pacing back and forth and he's just muttering, it's their fault and it's their fault and it's their fault and it's their fault and it's their fault. And he's just been consumed by his self and his bitterness and how like just walls are built up in his isolation. And C.S. Lewis says, you want to know what hell is like? That is hell. And so we're tempted then to go, well, detachment's not the answer. How about enmeshment? What if we lose ourselves in the crowd? But we can, and often do, experience isolation in the crowd. Being with other people does not eliminate this problem. To be isolated does not, in fact, mean to be alone. You can be alone and in communion. Right, Paul writes so many of the new, so much of the New Testament in aloneness, confined to a cell, as he writes with affection and love and delight in God and in other human beings that he is not in close proximity with. We can be in a room full of enemies. We can be in a room full of strangers. We can be in a room full of commodities and competitors. Togetherness does not, in fact, heal the deep fracturing of sin. And as we saw last week, 
It is only the community gathered together by the risen Jesus that we can actually finally find healing and communion. So our context of isolation tends to take the form of individualism. And I don't want to like sit here and bully up on individualism. I think it's a really easy thing to pick on. It's also really easy for you to hear me saying that individualism is isolation when actually it is just one form and expression in a culture that tends to uh, tends towards individualism of isolation. You can experience isolation in non-individualistic cultures. In fact, people do experience isolation in non-individualistic cultures. But we live in an individualistic culture, so let's chat about it for a second, shall we? Right, and I don't want to say this judgmentally. I want to say this with a lot of grace and a lot of kindness, and I want to invite you into something different. Individualism is, is trying to tell you and convince you that you can find your purpose and your meaning and even your healing within yourself. If you would only stop looking out and turn in, therein you will find resurrection. Individualism wants us to use the community for our own gain. And so we show up to church, right? Those people show up to church. Not, we would never do this. Looking at church as a commodity. This is about personal growth. Maybe I'll learn something. Maybe I'll network with some people. Maybe I'll, right, fill in the blank. And we're tempted to cling to one another to alleviate our condition of isolation. But this is in and of itself a form of hiding. Losing ourselves in the crowd, seeking from the community that which only Jesus Christ can really truly give us. Again, see last week's sermon. So if detachment is radical, radical individualism of like running away, then enmeshment is eradicating our personhood altogether and trying to hide in the other. And let me like flesh out how this tends to look in religious circles. Stop me if you've heard it. We find a really charismatic and probably young and maybe gently sexy preacher and we get him to say certain types of sermons in certain types of ways and the lights are just right and the music is just right and we build a platform on this personality And people lose themselves in the personality and they feel good about themselves because they're a part of this thing that's bigger than them that really has very little to do with Jesus. But I go to such and such church and -and so-and-so's my pastor. There are several documentaries about this and podcasts about this. If you're not smelling quite what I'm stepping in yet. And one of the things that I absolutely uh, hate is too strong a word, Brandon, filter. Okay, publicly filtering here. One of the things that I find some distaste for in the way that you and I do church here together is the fact that I'm standing up in an elevated position with a microphone. I don't like that. I am not Jesus. And I know you know that. Like, I know that's really obvious to you, but I think somehow we can like miss that in some weird ways. And part of the reason why we have had such a personality-driven religious ethos in our country is this idea of 
individualism and our tendency to get lost in the crowd. I need something bigger than myself to give me some form of certainty, something to tell me who and what I am and who and what I am about. And so we find something and we attach to it. So Bonhoeffer talks about this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor and a theologian during the the rise of the Nazis in World War II. And he writes a whole book about, hey, how do we have community as Christians? And he talks about this idea and the, like his language is chilling because you can take everything he's saying and apply it to like the megachurch phenomenon. But what he's talking about is the rise of Adolf Hitler and the church is like getting sucked up into that. It's wild. So where are we to turn and what are we to do with our isolation? We were obviously not made for this. And even though it comes natural to us, I would argue it is not in fact natural. And I am convinced that Jesus is the clearest revelation of God to humanity that has ever or will ever exist. Now, welcome to Redemption Church. If you don't quite agree with that, really, you are genuinely welcome here. But I will continually invite you into that reality One, because I hope it's true. Like I genuinely am staking my life on that in some ways that make me really uncomfortable sometimes. (laughs) But two, I've personally experienced life in that reality. I found it to nourish my soul and to give me life and give me hope and give me healing in ways that are really beautiful. So that Jesus is the clearest revelation of God to humanity, not the Bible, not your own inner conscience, Jesus, the living, breathing, incarnate God who came to earth, who actually died, who actually rose again, who is actually seated at the right hand of the Father and has actually given us the presence of his spirit. That Jesus is the fullest and clearest revelation of God that you and I will ever have. And here's what Jesus shows us. That you and I were made for communion. And that the God revealed in Jesus is in relentless pursuit of you in order to restore you into communion with him. Like if you hear nothing else this morning, I want you to hear this. Jesus shows us clearly that God is in relentless pursuit of you to restore you into communion. I know that some of you have heard the version of this that Jesus is actually ostracizing you, has cast you out, has thrown you away. But that is not what Jesus shows us. That is not what Jesus puts on display. The other thing Jesus shows us is that God in and of God's self is community, is communion, is love. When we say God is love, what do we mean? We mean that God is revealed as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, in unison with one another, in affection with one another, eternally existing as three persons. And so God is not driving us away out of or into isolation, but instead God is reaching towards us, stretching out in order to bring us in, into communion back to our full personhood. And Jesus reveals to us that God's desire is an invitation into communion and not an ostracization from it. Cain says, today you have driven me away from the soil and from your face. And God says, not so. 
When we gather Sunday after Sunday, I want us to remember that the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's not so to our isolation. God has not given up on us. God has not ostracized us. God has not abandoned us. And Jesus shows us this more clearly than anything else that I know of. And so as we gather Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, we are participating in the not so of God. Week in and week out we gather as the needy, the poor, the sinner, the isolated. We seek healing, restoration, and we start to become not a perfect people, but a people of communion. So individualism wants us to be the center rather than Jesus' spirit-filled community. And so individualism tells us, community's up to you. But do you know what Jesus tells us? Communion, community, this is who I am. This is what I do. Communion is God's work, my friends. It's already done. Communion has been bought by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you are invited into it. All you need to do is enter in. Right, so um, one of the other things that I'm like, "Ah, I get why we do it, it's totally fine, right? So there are lots of reasons why I'm captivated by the Catholic Church. Shout out to all my former Catholics in here. Or maybe present Catholics. Yeah, I don't know. You do you. Um, The way they take communion embodies so much of what we're trying to get at here. So we come up to communion and we actually like take and then we dip and we eat, right? What you'll often see if you've ever been to a mass is you'll walk up and for many, many people, they will just simply open their mouth and the priest will give communion because it's not something you can take. It is only something you could ever receive, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with the way that we're doing it. We're not like a bunch of heathens or anything like that, but there's something really beautiful probably also something not super hygienic, but something really beautiful about like, wow, what a picture of what Jesus is inviting us into. And like, how much are we trying to carry that is God's to carry? And Jesus is saying, hey, you, you can stop. You can let me be God and you can be you. And we can come to Jesus with like open hands we can receive. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it this way, Christian community is not an idea which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. I find that incredibly freeing. We don't have to manufacture it. We don't have to program it. We don't have to like whatever. We get to just join in the work that God is already doing. And so we are not responsible for making and for remaking ourselves and other people. We're not responsible for changing hearts. We're not called to be Jesus. We're simply called to follow him. And the reconciliation of the world comes as a gift through us and to us. Okay, last piece here. So for many of us, and I will continue to beat this drum because I've, 
I found it life-giving and freeing for me, and I'm going to continue to beat the drum because I think you'll find it life-giving and freeing also. Many of us grew up in circles where the gospel was some version of avoiding hell and getting to heaven, right? And so the whole point of the whole thing, at the center of the whole thing, was about a location, was about a place. It's about avoiding one place and getting to another place. What I want to help us reframe is that the gift that Jesus is getting you is is not a gift of place. It is a gift of being. You are becoming something in Christ that you were not before. And if you're being moved, it's not from a place to a place. It's from not with a person into a person, severed from God into communion with God. And so salvation is less about damnation and eternal security, and salvation is more about communion. It's about restoring that original intent of humanity, of people being lovers. And so in Christ-centered community, as we gather, and when we gather during the week to pray and to confess and to repent, and to struggle and talk through like how we're trying to follow this Jesus in our everyday lives. Our isolation is transformed. In community, we find healing because we are decentered. When we come together on a Sunday, uh, as much as uh, I'm trying not to be the center of this, I'm like, no, no, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus is the center of our gathering, not us. And, and in that, Together, we are fixing our gaze on the healing love of God and hopefully finding freedom from the reality like, oh yeah, I'm not him and I don't have to be. And we become a people, a people. Not individuals, we become a people who together encounter the living God through and with one another. We don't lose ourselves. We don't lose our personhood in the community, but instead we become porous, open to others, not dissolving into each other. We become individual persons brought into union by Christ. And then as we follow him, we share in Christ, we share in one another, and we're changed in that encounter as we try and embody this kingdom that Jesus invites us to embody. We're going to spend the rest of the semester talking, or yeah, semester, sorry. The rest of the semester talking about this. But it's the cruciform way. It's the finding our life and losing it. It's forgiving when there's no reason to forgive. It's giving when we're wondering how we're going to, we have anything left to give. It's doing justice for others when it might cost us some justice and equity for ourselves. Together, Christ transforms us into people who can give and receive communion. He transforms us into people of love, participants in the kingdom of God. And together, we leave isolation behind and we let go. We let go of our fear. We let go of our othering. We let go of our weapons. And we freely and we vulnerably inhabit God's kingdom together. In Christ, you actually get to just be you. The mess that you are, right? Don't don't get it twisted. And I know that you're a mess because I'm a mess. 
that you can let go and you get to be you. And you can trust that God's work is God's work, which also means you can then let go and let others be them and be the messes that they are. And you can give them more than they deserve, better than they deserve. You can forgive them when they don't deserve forgiveness. We can put down our weapons, lower our defenses, stop trying to leverage and control and manipulate and use or find ourselves in others, and we can follow Jesus into a new life, a new way of being. And we'll find that the comfort is actually, the thing we feared in losing those things is actually that when we set them down, we gain our lives. And we experience joy and healing and peace. And so when we gather and Christ gathers with us, our tables are transfigured. And our gathering becomes a signpost of the kingdom of God. Whether that's here on a Sunday morning, whether that's in our homes, whether that's out in our hubs. When we who are bound together by Christ join together at the table, we are joined by the bread and the blood and the fellowship with one another. Participating in Christ's work, a foretaste of the kingdom, trusting in God, depending in God, entrusting ourselves to God to do the work of God an extension of our participation in Jesus' death and resurrection here into the isolated world. Communion. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.